Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, COVID cases have ticked up across the United States since Thanksgiving, including in Florida, where the positivity rate is once again in the double digits. Flu and RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, cases are adding to the mix of respiratory illnesses and what's been labelled a triple-demic. Babies and young children are being sent home with RSV, and some of them are ending up in emergency rooms. Yeah, that's right. And at the same time, flu-like illnesses are surging with nearly 9 million cases, 70,000 hospitalizations, and more than 4,000 deaths from influenza reported across the U.S. so far this year. Of course, this is all happening, Matthew, right as we head into the holidays. So we're going to begin the hour here on the Florida Roundup with a discussion of the triple-demic battering the state's hospitals. Give us a call. Anyone in your family sick this month? 305-995-1800. 305-995-1800. Tweet us at Florida Roundup. Well, for more on what's driving the triple-demic and how we can protect ourselves, we welcome Christine Sexton, reporter at Florida Politics. Hey, Christine. Hi, thanks for having me. And Chad Nielsen, Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at UF Health Jacks. Hi, Chad. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, Let's begin with you, Christine. In a moment, we'll hear the specifics from Chad. But first, the triple-demic is a real thing in Florida, correct? Oh, yeah. Um, The uh, state's last um, COVID reports show that the number of cases have been on the uptick. Um, There are, I think, eight counties that are now considered um, hotspots across the state for the increase in COVID activity. And then, of course, flu cases are on the rise and now the RSV. So this is for sure a triple a triple threat. A triple threat. Uh, are there certain hot spots around the state at particularly high risk? Um, yeah, well, I, the last uh, map I was looking at showed that in terms of COVID-19 infections, that the hotspots are Miami-Dade County, Broward, Palm Beach, Hendry, Lee, Osceola, Polk, and Leon County. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got a good bit of South Florida, and then interesting that Leon County up in the Panhandle is seeing an increase in, in cases. 305-995-1800. And Christine, not good timing. Uh, we are a tourism hub uh, every month of the year. But we're also heading right into big travel for the holidays. Lots of people will be coming in and out of the state to celebrate. So how is that complicating things? Um, You know, what's interesting is when you see more people around. I I don't know. Again, I'm in Leon County, so I'm in one of these eight counties that is considered a hot spot. And as I look around me, I see a lot more people beginning to wear masks again. I don't know about your experiences in other parts of the county and I in other parts of the state. Um, but for sure, Florida is open for business per the governor and people are coming. And I just think, you know, people are making their choices about whether or not they want to get vaccinated and wear masks. But 
I, I will tell you, I was recently visiting a friend at a local hospital here, and I was required to put, or strongly, strongly asked to put on a mask before I entered the facility. So I think, you know, we're open for business and Florida is free, but people, I, I you know, I think people are beginning to take precautions again. 305-995-1800. We're talking about the so-called triple-demic, the triple threat uh, of flu, RSV, and of course COVID-19 hasn't gone away yet. We're with Christine Sexton, Florida Politics, and UF Health Jacksonville's Chad Nelson. Chad, let me bring you into this conversation. Sure. Um, how can people tell these things apart? I mean, obviously RSV is more of a threat to certain sectors of the population, right, like younger patients, but... How do you know what you've got short of the the old uh, do-it-yourself um, you know, COVID test to eliminate at least the possibility of that? And how can you better help you know, patients and the providers figure out the best treatment course? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And, and obviously, all three are respiratory viruses, COVID, RSV, and flu, and they all share very similar symptoms. Uh, without testing, really, there's no way to be sure uh, what somebody is going to have because all three look very uh, indistinguishable to most people. Uh, however, that said, in children and in older adults, if they have RSV, uh, wheezing tends to be a symptom that does stand apart from the other two respiratory illnesses of COVID and flu. So if you have a young one, particularly a child under the age of four uh, that is wheezing, uh, and that is acting like they are sick with a respiratory illness, that's a, a good indication uh, that you should take them into a pediatrician and get them tested for RSV. Uh, similarly, in older adults or those who have a weakened immune system, that wheezing is really the key thing that sets apart RSV from the others. And just to clarify, I mean, RSV does affect adults. It's not just something that you find in younger patients. Yeah, absolutely right. So we know that kids are particularly vulnerable to RSV because of their uh, not quite fully developed immune system, but the same could be said for uh, adults as well. Those who uh, are either sharing comorbidities or those over 65 who uh, maybe their immune system is not as strong as it would be uh, when they were younger, they are also at risk for RSV. Most adults uh, who have had it as a kid will maintain some level of immunity, but that immunity to RSV wears off the older they get. 305-995-1800 is the number. That's 305-995-1800. What's your experience been with the triple-demic so far, the triple threat of flu, RSV, or COVID-19 as we head into the cooler months of the year? Let's go now to Susan in West Palm Beach. Susan, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I don't know if this is RSV, but it's been... Since uh, the 24th, Thanksgiving Day, I woke up with a, a dry throat, and uh, ever since, it's been uh, lots and lots of phlegm and coughing, and no, well, there was a slight, slight fever the first day or two, and and um, it's just going on and on, and I can't seem to uh, get rid of it. And I talked to the doctor and said, look, I know that you're not supposed to take antibiotics, but if there's a bacterial element to this, then antibiotics would work. And they said, go ahead, try it for a week. And I, I, I'm finishing the week right now and didn't do it. At first, it seemed to have cured it, and then it came right back. Right. 
thanks for your call. Uh, um, Chad, thoughts on that? I mean, that sort of goes back to our question earlier about, you know, how do you know what you've got and what's the best course of treatment? Yeah, so I, again, I think really the best thing someone can do when they have these prolonged symptoms is to get tested by your doctor. Um, here in the medical community, we, we really don't like giving antibiotics uh, during respiratory viral season because, as most people know, um, antimicrobials and antibiotics, they do not help viral diseases. And so, as you heard with this caller, uh, her doctor kind of broke down and said, fine, just take some antibiotics, but they didn't work. And so, she more than likely has some kind of respiratory virus that um, sometimes the acute symptoms will last for a few days. Sometimes they will continue to last uh, 10 days to 14 days or longer. Everybody's body is different. Uh, if you are having any worsening of symptoms after a week or so, that's when you really need to, to seek medical attention from your provider. But uh, testing in is going to be the best way to do this. And for what it's worth, a lot of outpatient uh, physicians won't test. They'll simply treat. Liv in uh, Volusia County. Hey, Liv. How are you? I'm well. How are you? All right. What's your question? Um, so it was less of a question. It was more of a comment of what I see in uh, my county. I'm in Volusia County of um, sick culture being somewhat normalized. Um, the CDC recommended for people to mask up again in uh, tight knit areas, populated areas. And I've been taking that action, but it's living in a different world in my town. It's almost as if nobody else has gotten that information, cares about that information. There is like barely any masks in sight. You can walk into a crowded store and not see one person with a mask on um, and, you know, hear people coughing. And the scariest part is hearing people talking about currently actively being sick and, you know, kind of almost having that apprehension when you hear that, like, oh, snap, what do they have? Like, is it COVID? Is it RSV? Is it the flu? Am I going to get sick? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Liv. Uh, Christine Sexton, what about that? I think, Christine, you mentioned you are seeing more people wearing masks in Tallahassee, but depending on your zip code, that can change. And I I also believe that depending on... Um, the environment, well, yeah. So I'll share with you, again, I was recently in a hospital and there were masks at the door, they were being provided, there were signs up encouraging people to wear them. But um, I'll tell you when uh, I was at a football game and I understand it was outside, but it was a huge football game, um, you know, Florida State uh, versus the Florida Gators, and I was surrounded by tens of thousands of people. And albeit it was outside, no one was wearing a mask. And I, on more than one occasion, looked around my, you know, looked around me and I was like, wow, you know, we're all very close to each other. We're screaming, we're chanting, we're yelling, and none of us, myself included, um, I'm embarrassed to admit, weren't none of us were wearing masks, you know, um, I, I think it's a lot, it's personal choice and, and the governor, you know, is not a fan of them. Latipo is not a fan of them. We do live in Florida and Florida has taken a different approach when it comes to handling the pandemic. 
Indeed, yeah, some difference of opinion there. We are into heading into year three, I think, if my math is correct, of the COVID-19 pandemic, so a bit of pandemic fatigue, well, it's set in long ago, but it's maybe amplifying now. 305-995-1800 is the number to call. Send us a tweet, too. We are at Florida Roundup. Your experience of the so-called triple-demic uh, COVID-19, RSV and flu hitting the state and the country pretty hard at this time. Uh, let's go to Joe in Polk County. Joe, what's on your mind? Yeah, so I, I, I'm one of those people who I hadn't been sick in over 15, 18 years and got wow. all the shots and um, then went to this marriage encounter retreat over in Tampa and came home and immediately got sick. Now, my mm. wife's a school teacher. Uh, she gets sick every year. She got COVID last year. She was down two weeks. My son got it. My daughter got it. I was taking care of everybody. Um, but it wasn't until this close encounter marriage re- retreat uh, group that uh, got home and finally was sick with COVID and tested mm-hmm. positive for it. And um, it, it, this, this is real. So it's, it, when it's affecting people like me who never get sick and have had the shot, and uh, it, it, it's what this means is this is just going to be a big revolving door of sickness. Right. It's never going to – it's just going to keep rotating because of the fact that when I do talk to people, some of them have never gotten the shot and hmm. don't want to get the shot and will never get the shot, especially in Florida where we live. Uh, so we're basically just – Feeding this this monster, it's it all it's it's you know it's alternating, it's it's changing. Mm. So then we're just destined to keep getting it and keep spreading it because this is you know an open state. And what it affects is people like me who are down. I'm a small business owner and I was yeah. down six days. So um, you know this being a right to work state BS. Mm. Um, right, yeah, Joe, have... your, your message coming through loud and clear there, this, and that is a, a serious concern for folks who are self-employed, right? They they can't, um, you know, they can't afford to take a, a sick day necessarily. Uh, Chad, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, this notion that we are in this kind of, as, as a caller noted, at a quote-unquote revolving door where it's just a cycle that keeps going. Your thoughts? I mean, as somebody sort of st- studies the epidemiology of this, yeah. it's a bit of a bleak view. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think if you separate out the different illnesses we're seeing right now, right, uh, RSV has a very particular uh, sort of season it likes to affect people. Uh, We're seeing a lot of it right now because for the last two to three years, kids have not been at school or kids have been uh, otherwise not exposed to it. So we're seeing this large amount of kids being exposed and getting RSV because they never had it over the last two years because of social distancing, lockdowns, masking. Uh, if you look at flu, similarly with flu, we're seeing a huge resurgence of it, um, not only because it was sort of suppressed epidemiologically during the, the more worse COVID years, but mm. because also we are not seeing people getting vaccinated for flu. In fact, our flu vaccination numbers in the U.S. are lagging even last year, uh, which was uh, one of the all-time lowest in two decades. Um, and then when you look at COVID, Uh, He's right in a sense that we're going to be dealing with COVID for a long time. Uh, If I can go back and listen to audio recordings of myself at the the start of this pandemic and and I was asked, how long is this going to last? I think I said three years, Uh, but Mm -hmm. here we are at three years 
And uh, apparently it, it's continuing to move on as the virus mutates and as people continue uh, to live or, or behave in ways that continue to spread the virus. Um, so each individual virus taken on its own has reasons for uh, why it's peaking right now. It's just all happening at the same time, unfortunately. Christine in Boca Raton. Go ahead, Christine. Um, hi, thank you for having me. Um, my kids came home right before Thanksgiving after being on a three-month backpacking trip through Europe, um, and they promptly started getting sick like Thanksgiving Day. Mm. Turned out they had COVID. My husband and I both got it, too. Um, you know, we were all vaccinated against the flu. Um, my husband and I had the latest booster, but my kids left too soon, like a week too early to get that booster. But, you know, it was interesting because we all seem to have very different experiences with the virus. My daughter got over it right away. Um, my son was really sickest for a long time. Mm -hmm. My husband and I were kind of in the middle. But, um, you know, I was wondering, was there a different strain coming from Europe? Yeah, I, I, I thank you for that. Uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, Christine Sexton, uh, the bivalent booster that is encouraged is to protect against this newest strain. Any other final thoughts or advice? Um, you know, I, the, the one thing I'd also like to point out is I feel as though Governor DeSantis and um, Dr. Latipo, they've, they really haven't um, been as supportive of vaccines as some other leaders. It, it, matter of fact, Latipo in October uh, issued some recommendations that against men um, between the ages of 18 and 39 getting vaccinated. And, and, you know, that was a follow-up to some recommendations he issued in March. So I think a lot of what we do takes our, um, we follow our leaders. And, and I think, you know, DeSantis and Latipo have really made names for themselves as some of the leaders bucking the CDC. Well, thank you both for uh, bringing us up to date on this triple demic and be safe out there, everybody, and get vaccinated. Christine Sexton with Florida Politics, Chad Nielsen, Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at UF Health Jacksonville. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Well, coming up next, Florida highways are some of the most dangerous in the country. I'm sure anybody who's been out on I-4 lately or some of the other major roads can attest to that. And that's according to a brand new report. We'll talk about why that is, why Florida highways are some of the most dangerous when we come back after the break, you're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well... This isn't a surprise to a lot of us. In this state, you often get behind the wheel at your own risk. So says a new report. It calls Florida one of the worst states in the nation at keeping motorists safe on highways. The group Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety ranks Florida a danger state. They say the roads are a hazard because of our low number of laws on the books aimed at preventing traffic deaths. 305-995-1800 is the number. Tell us about your experience driving in Florida. Thoughts on what could make it safer. You can also send us a tweet 
at Florida Roundup. We're joined now by reporter Olivia George. She covers transportation and tourism for the Tampa Bay Times and joins us now. Olivia, thanks for being here. Olivia, are you with us? I am. Can you hear me? I can, yes. Thanks for being here. Super. Also with us, Tara Gill, Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety's Senior Director of Advocacy and State Legislation. Tara, thank you as well. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Well, Tara, I want to start with you. Just how dangerous are Florida highways? Put it in context for us. Well, uh, in our report, we um, give Florida a, a red rating. Uh, we sort of group states into uh, green, yellow, or red, depending upon the number of traffic safety laws they passed. And we're looking at what we we feel are 16 just foundational traffic safety laws that every state should pass. And out of those 16, Florida has only passed three of the laws. Hmm. And, you know, just in looking at the data and statistics for Florida over the last decade, you know, at least for the last five years, it's been year after year traffic fatality increases in the state. And looking at the 10 year total, nearly 30,000 people have died on Florida's roadways. Um, and that's a hmm. tremendous amount of lives lost. So just if you could lay out for us what the, the, the laws that are on the books in Florida that do make a difference and the others that aren't, I mean, that's, that's a bit of an imbalance, right? To your point, there's, there's more laws that should be that, that aren't. Um, what are the, the ones that we have and what are some of the big ones that could make a significant impact on traffic safety in Florida? Yeah, absolutely. So just to, um, you know, pan out a little bit more broadly over the last couple of years, uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration or NHTSA has noted that a, a couple of deadly driving behaviors have contributed to the uptick in crashes. And those include impaired driving, lack of seatbelt use, speeding, and likely distracted driving. Distracted driving can, can be hard to um, get proper data on. It's hard to, to you know, really know how much is going on. But if you know, you've been in the car in the last week, I'm sure you've come across at least one person driving nearby who's looking at a phone, who has a phone mm -hmm. in their hand, um, who, you know, who is obviously distracted behind the wheel. So right now, Florida's current laws that we recommend are that ha you have a primary enforcement seatbelt law, but just for the front seat. It doesn't include occupants in the back seat. And we think that, you know, all occupants should be buckled up and that should be primary enforced. Florida also um, regarding impaired driving has passed an open container law and you also have an all driver text messaging ban. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are all great. So um, in addition to upgrading the seatbelt law, we're recommending that all motorcycle riders be required to wear helmets. Right now, Florida's helmet law is only applicable to those under 20, age 21. Mm -hmm. uh, to improve child passenger safety, that you upgrade your booster seat law and require kids to be in booster seats until at least age eight and around 57 inches in height. And that's a, approximately the size when they can properly fit into a seatbelt. So 57 inches is not a magic number. So it's 57 inches and proper seatbelt fit. 
We also hmm. recommend that children remain in a rear-facing safety seat through age two or older, and that kids stay properly restrained in a rear seat through age 12. Um, for teen novice drivers, uh, we recommend Florida improve its graduated driver licensing law. And these are programs that help to train teens in low risk scenarios to become better drivers. And right. then when the, they have more experience, then they they gain the ability to drive independently. So we're recommending that uh, Florida increase its minimum age for a lear learner's permit and for independent driving, that they increase the number of supervised driving hours, uh, that they improve their nighttime driving restriction and their passenger restriction as well. And then- So qu yeah. quite a long list there. Um, and, and sorry to cut you off, but I just wanted to yeah, jump in and ask, I mean, you mentioned uh, texting and driving, and to your point, I mean, Florida does have that no texting while driving law in the books, but you do see an awful lot of people on their phone while driving at a pretty high rate of knots down the highway. How long does it take for a law to take an effect and, and actually make a difference? Right. Um, well, that's a great point. So usually these laws, uh, when laws get across the finish line, there's, you know, there's a fair amount of media and messaging that goes along with them. And we've seen in some states, even before a law goes into effect, because people aren't sure when it's going into effect, that there can be improvements right away. But regarding distracted driving, you know, even as we we've passed laws to restrict texting, the capability of our, our devices has just, it's really exploded. You know, what mm. was once a simple texting device is now a small computer and you can do any number of things with a single swipe and voice activated prompts. So, you know, people should not be texting behind the wheel, but they also so shouldn't be, you know, on FaceTime or video conferencing or streaming shows or playing games. So, you know, we have really been pushing states to to upgrade, to expand their distracted driving laws to to cover the new host of distractions that have come down the line. We'll go to your calls in a bit here on the Florida Roundup statewide about Florida's dangerous highways. The number to call us 305-995-1800. Pull over before you call us, by the way. Uh, let's go to Olivia George. She covers transportation over at the Tampa Bay Times. So, Olivia, you reported recently on the World Remembrance Day for road traffic victims in Pinellas County. And you pointed out most other wealthy nations are getting safer streets, but in the U.S., our roads are getting more dangerous. Can you elaborate a bit on that? That's right. Um, researchers have routinely demonstrated that the soaring number of U.S. crash deaths is really due to policy choices in a lot of ways and can't really be dismissed as a, uh, a sad truth of American exceptionalism. Um, by, many, by many metrics, U.S. roads are becoming deadlier. Uh, last year, I believe the U.S. hit a 16-year high in crash deaths, while other wealthy nations like Norway and Japan are reaching all-time lows. Um, there are re researchers appointed to a number of different reasons for why that might be the case. For example, um, sort of this American appetite for increasingly large SUVs and trucks, which we know um, are, are more likely to kill pedestrians, for example, up, upon impact than smaller vehicles. 
There's also been sort of resistance to other safety practices that are increasingly common um, in other countries around the world. And just before we go to callers, I, I'd encourage anyone that's interested to look at Florida Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles online crash database. Um, there's a lot of data out there that really points to who is vulnerable, policy choices that can make improvements. Um, and that online crash database is both useful um, and heartbreaking in terms of understanding the scale and scope of the problem. Any stories that really stand out for you from people you've talked with that have been involved in some of these deadly crashes? Gosh, um, unfortunately, uh, there are many. One in particular that comes to mind, um, I've been in frequent communication with a Pinellas County resident, that's the county that I'm based out of, whose nephew was killed um, by a driver while he was trying to reach his school bus stop. Um, and he said something to me to the effect of, you know, we can't sit here and point fingers and just point blame and say that the responsibility falls on some other agency, because at the end of the day, there isn't a price that you can put on a, on a person's life. Um, and that, that mirrors the sentiment that a lot of researchers have told me that is, you know, we have, we have tools at our fingertips. We know what makes the streets safer for all, whether that's um, changes to speed limits, improving lighting, those sorts of things. It doesn't have to be this, this guessing game of how are we going to respond to this tragedy. There are research-supported, data-supported um, steps that can be taken. And as you've also reported, some Florida counties are looking at ways to fund some of these better transportation modules. What about the federal dollars coming to Florida under the new infrastructure law? Is there any way that could improve safety for all of us? Yes. So um, apologies, I don't have that number right in front of me, but I but I can definitely find it um, in the uh, so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill. There is money specifically earmarked in that to um, adding features to our roadways to make them safer for all, um, which has a lot of people feeling optimistic. Uh, but at the same time, it's becoming a question of, you know, how, how quickly can, can that money get out and can we be uh, implementing these data-driven um, policies that will hopefully make roadways safer for all. I know that um, the Secretary of the U.S. Department of, for Transportation has been very vocal about this being a priority, um, but, you know, time will tell if action matches uh, talk. You're listening to the Florida Roundup on Florida Public Radio, talking about Florida's dangerous highways with Tampa Bay Times reporter Olivia George and Tara Gill with the Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety. Let's get some calls in here. You can give us a, a ring. Tell us about your experiences. 305-995-1800 is the number. Send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. Uh, let's go to Brent in St. Augustine. Brent, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? Doing okay. I'm glad you're talk talking about this subject. I, I've had a problem with this since, I mean, I'm 50 now, so since I was 16. Mm -hmm. um, I understand you want to add laws, and, and that's great, but I spend more time on the road in a year than most people do in their lives. So adding laws can help, but the average driver doesn't understand the laws and aren't aware of most of them. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the number one thing I would suggest is to just teach people how to drive. They don't do that in this country. I mean, you get, what, a driver's test for 30 minutes driving around in a circle and then a written test. Hmm. The average 16-year-old has no idea how to change their oil or check their tires or windshield wipers or whether the, no, the, the vehicle even operates, much less what a new law would be. Also, so you, you're saying bit, bit of training is the is the answer? Yeah, just plain old teach people how to drive. Other countries, you've got to spend six months in snows or three, six weeks in snows, six weeks in rain, six hmm. weeks in summer, etc. By the time you're done, it takes three, four years. By the time you're done, there's nothing you don't know about operating a vehicle and right. maintaining it. Brent, thanks so much for your call. I appreciate that. Um, let me just put this to you, Olivia. You reported um, for the Tampa Bay Times on your experience with mass transit, and I think you mentioned in there that you'd, you'd um, gotten a driver's license yourself fairly recently as somebody who's come from a part of the country and part of the world where there's a more mature mass transit system, so you don't have to rely on a car so much. What's your experience been of, first of all, I guess being a fairly recent arrival to the state of Florida and kind of seeing the roads through, through new eyes? Sure. So I I didn't learn to drive in Florida. I was living in Rhode Island before I arrived here. So I can't speak to the specifics of what it's like to navigate um, obtaining a license in Florida. But I, I think what I what I will say and what I um, think is an important part of this conversation and has been reiterated to me to by urban planners that I've spoken to, transit officials, um, etc., is that in talking about this this really terrible um, U.S. and Floridian track record with road safety, you know, the goal is not and should not be to demonize drivers. You know, the main takeaway is not that anyone that is behind the wheel of a car is a terrible person looking out um, to hit someone. Of course not. But it's that rather for decades and decades, we have planned communities around this sort of central principle of getting someone who is in a car from point A to point B as quickly and as swiftly as possible. And that that is why I think the phrase dangerous by design um, Mm. is something that researchers are really trying to educate people about. It's this idea that our road systems are crafted in a way that really puts um, drivers and other people that use those roadways in um, less than optimal situations, whether that's because there is insufficient education about um, road safety, whether that's because uh, road lighting is not up to scratch, whether that's because speed limits are too high, all of these different um, factors. I just, I wanted to make sure that that uh, was kind of being foregrounded, you know, this this idea of, of dangerous by design. And that again, harks back to the preventability of a lot of this heartache. Let's get in one more and call. Matthew, Ra- uh, go ahead, Tara. I just wanted to jump in to say, you know, we couldn't agree more with what Olivia just said. And if you look at the report, it, our recent report, it really takes a comprehensive approach in which traffic safety laws are only a component of what we're recommending to improve safety. And roadway safety infrastructure upgrades are a third of our recommendations, as well as proven vehicle safety technologies like automatic emergency braking that's required to detect and respond to all people in the roadway environment, whether you're 
you know, walking or biking in all lighting conditions and all speeds, uh, these safety technologies will be a game changer once they're required on all vehicles, as well as the infrastructure upgrades for which there's a billion dollars over five years available to localities across the nation. Mm. Well, uh, there are so many people waiting on hold that want to basically all say the same thing. Uh, Floridians can't drive. So for everybody waiting to say that, we hear you out there. And believe me, we feel your pain. And I want to thank Olivia George covering transportation for the Tampa Bay Times and Tara Gill. Uh, She is the senior director of safe advocacy and state legislation at Advocates for Highway and Automobile Safety. Thank you both so much for joining the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, when we come back, recent Florida storms uncover fascinating shipwrecks and more. What turned up in the storms and Why is that a concern? That's next here on the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, after Hurricanes Ian and Nicole blew through the state, they not only left massive damage in their wakes, They also uncovered some fascinating archaeological sites. Yeah, that's right, Matthew. Uh, An 1800s-era shipwreck recently turned up on Little Talbot Island. And in Daytona Beach, a curious object on the sand discovered there, and it has people guessing. The finds are fascinating, but they also show how climate change is threatening these sites. It's 305-995-1800 as we welcome Emily Jane Murray, archaeologist with the Florida Public Archaeology Network. Good morning or good afternoon. Good morning. And Chuck Mead, he's a maritime archaeologist and director of the Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program. That's the research arm of the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Museum. Hey, Chuck. Hi. Good to be here. Good to have you here in the studio. Uh, Emily Jane, what do we know about these finds? Um, Well, we have been out deploying, trying to to learn as much as we can. Um, You know, we're seeing in general just an increase in these kinds of things. Um, so we've seen lots of ships uh, up here. We've seen um, the site on Talbot Islands, one that has actually moved quite a bit. Um, and so we've been working with uh, Chuck and, and the folks at the Lighthouse to track um, that site. Yeah. Now, so. Chuck, you uh, drove up from St. Augustine to be here in Jacksonville in studio, but you're actually on your way after this radio program up to Little Talbot Island to look at that shipwreck. Uh, we're just uh, we have a little bit to wrap up on that shipwreck uh, to record its current condition after the uh, impact from the storm. So, uh, yeah, right after I leave the studio, I'm heading there. Wow. It's fascinating to see this. But how are these stronger storms endangering some of these sensitive sites? What are your thoughts about that? Well, uh, they definitely are. And we're definitely seeing more shipwrecks uh, uh, being exposed after storms like this. So it it used to be a really felt like a unique experience, and now it's becoming a bit more commonplace. Uh, As Emily Jane said, uh, the shipwreck at Little Talbot Island uh, has moved quite a bit. It was first discovered in 1987, actually, uh, after a storm, and it has moved something like three miles or so over the years, it gets uh, buried again, then it gets unburied. If it's a big enough hurricane, it gets moved and it gets buried again and unburied and there's a cycle. So that one's quite interesting that we have a record of it and that we 
have been able to go back out to it. So Emily Jane and I actually were there together in hmm. 2019 after Hurricane Dorian. And then, of course, we visited it right after uh, Ian and now Nicole. Wow. And Emily Jane, what about the find down in Daytona Beach? What do we know about that one? Um, well, I, I will say uh, Chuck has been out every day. I've uh, been out on another project. <laughs> oh, okay. That one, so. okay, no problem. Um, well, but... then, let me ask you more broadly. <laughs> how, what, what can we learn from all of this as, as these old items are covered, uncovered, or they wash ashore? You handle these sites very delicately, of course. And what are the takeaways for all of us that are just watching from afar? I mean, each time something's uncovered, you know, it's an opportunity to get out and learn more about the sites. Um, so we can record them, we can document them. Um, and instead of, you know, doing a full-blown excavation and trying to, you know, dig up the sites, um, we can kind of just get snapshots of, uh, you know, of, of the the ships as, as parts of them show up. And um, like the Talbot Island wreck has flipped over a couple times. So we've seen it from yeah. different angles or um, we've also seen a lot of just shoreline erosion at, you know, sites uh, shell middens along coastlines, places like that. So as we, as the sites are eroding, you know, we can see different parts of the site. We can see different artifacts that are appearing. Um, so it's a great way to document the sites. Uh, it's, it's sad sometimes to see them, you know, being impacted like that, but, you know, just, just getting out and recording and, and, and learning more about them is always, uh, you know, makes it, makes it bittersweet. It makes it exciting too. So. 305-995-1800 is the number. We're talking about shipwrecks that have been revealed by recent storms, Hurricanes Ian and Nicole. And before that, Hurricane Dorian, I'm sure other storms too, uh, giving us a different look as our guests are saying at each of these shipwrecks with Emily Jane Murray and Chuck Mead, both archaeologists and digging into the latest uh, finds, I suppose, the latest uh, shipwrecks that have been revealed. Um Emily Jane, if you wanted to preserve a wreck like this and you wanted to dig it up completely, how would you do that? I mean, is that even possible? Uh, it takes a lot of uh, manpower and a lot of effort. And at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these sites um, are safer where they are. So if they were covered with sand, if they were, um, you know, protected with with all of that dirt and, and sediment, um, we've seen uh, just several years ago, 2018, I believe, 2016, the, um, we had the spring break wreck that washed up on the shore at, in Ponte Vedra Beach and you know mm -hmm. that site uh, was well protected down at the bottom of the ocean covered with sediment it was wet which actually can create very stable environments for wooden objects uh, but when it was removed from there when it washed up on the shore you know the second it started drying out we started to see um, the wood warp and break down and all um, so trying to preserve something that big is uh, of course time consuming it costs a lot of money and just trying to um, figure out you have to uh, desalinate the objects, you have to get the salt mm -hmm. out of there, and you have to dry them out slowly and, and carefully so that the wood maintains its structure. So um, it would take a lot to try to preserve these. So a lot of the efforts that we have are, you know, documenting things, reburying them if possible. Um, we have a program where we actually tag shipwrecks. Um, and so as the pieces of them, as the, the parts and, and structures kind of move around, um, you know, you can scan a little QR code and uh, take a photo and take a, a point, a GPS point, you know, of where the site is. And so we've seen, um, we had a, a colleague who did some work in Virginia and, and was able to track, you know, these sh ship timbers moving up and down the coast quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Now, these two wrecks, the Little Talbot Island wreck and the Daytona Beach wreck, do, do we know where they're from and how they got wrecked? Like, yeah, what do we Chuck, know about them? 
Well, we uh, uh, it, it, it can be difficult, uh, certainly almost impossible, uh, to identify a ship like this by name, but sometimes we can. Uh, in both of these cases, we think we have vessels that date to the 1800s and were most likely cargo carriers uh, or uh, merchant ships. You know, it could have been a load of lumber, could have been a load of manufactured goods, could have mm. been uh, almost anything. And, uh, any gold in the cargo? Uh, not uh-uh. not usually. Darn <laughs> you know, it. No buried it, treasure. It's pretty rare. You know, we get asked that a lot, of course, but it's about the same uh, 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 chance that you would find of, uh, you know, how many semi-trucks do you see on uh, the interstate versus how many uh, uh, armored cars full of cash? You know, it's much more mm-hmm. likely it's one of these cargo carriers uh, that's uh, carrying these goods. It's uh, the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. So then, as we keep seeing bigger and stronger storms, should we just expect more and more long-buried items to wash up on the sand like this? That, is this going to be the new normal? Uh, that seems to be the new normal. You know, I've, I've been at the uh, St. Augustine Lighthouse uh, for 16 years, and it, it certainly seems to be a little bit higher frequency that uh, we are uh, being called out because there's uh, this great excitement about a new find on the beach, a new uh, shipwreck. On what, the, what's on the, the most exciting thing about it for you? Because you, you're going up to the site. Here, right, right after we wrap yes, this show. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I've always, uh, I always want to try to solve the mystery, which I think is something that captivates people. When all of a sudden one day there's this, you know, a wooden hulk on the beach that wasn't there, and we think of Spanish galleons and pirate ships, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, the ships mm-hmm. that uh, just sailed back and forth along our coast. And so I want to try to uh, figure out what that mystery is. And so. Uh, you know, we'll take wood samples. We can do species identification. Maybe that might give us a clue to the geographic origins of the ship. We're looking at the the joinery of the wood, the fasteners that are used, uh, the uh, just different construction features, and sometimes those give us clues. Mm. Uh, so it's a detective story. Uh, you know, at Daytona Beach Shores, we only had two days that we could dedicate uh, to looking at this, so we only had a limited bit uh, exposed. Uh, and so, uh, but we still amassed a lot of information and we'll be looking at that in the lab for quite some time to come. Yeah. But you don't know, Matthew, I don't think they're sure what they found in Daytona beach. Well, we, yeah. that's yeah, definitely, sounds, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, that's, it's definitely a shipwreck. There was it's some, definitely oh, a shipwreck. Yeah, yeah. Okay. it's definitely a ship. Okay. I, 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 if it was a pier, it was a pier that was meant to be mobile and sail across the ocean. So. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um, Emily Jane Murray, let me just ask you if I could. I mean, are there some rules if just a member of the public, not a archaeologist, uh, just finds something that looks like it could be a shipwreck or something on the shore? Like, what 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 do you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you can call us at the Florida Public Archaeology Network, or you can call Chuck at the St. Augustine uh, Archaeological Maritime Program at the St. Augustine Lighthouse. And um, you know, most of these sites are on state-owned property or. Um, you know, some beaches are owned by counties or, or, or different municipalities, so they would be the you know owned by the state or whoever owns the beach. Um, so mm-hmm. we don't recommend taking any parts from the shipwrecks because uh, you know any any small part could be the clue that lets you know, you know, as Chuck saying what the mystery is, what helps you figure out what the ship, you know, where it was made or what it was doing. Um, so yeah, you can give us a call, and we're always happy to to come out and, and take a look at things. Um, and we do have, you know, some opportunities for folks to volunteer on some of these type projects as well. Um, the Lighthouse has a lot of volunteers and we have a, a program too where we get folks out taking a look at um, sites that are being impacted from these mm-hmm. climate change impacts and storms. Do you, do you share information with other, other archaeologists too? I mean, it sounds like you're both pretty excited about these, these wrecks coming up. So there must be a bit of a information sharing going on. 
Yeah, the state actually keeps an inventory of all known archaeological resources. So, um, you know, at, at, at the basic level, we collect, you know, where the site is, what kind of site it is, you know, any kind of information that we may be able to, to learn about the ship. Um, it gets put in the state's inventory of resources mm -hmm. so that other archaeologists or heritage professionals can get some of that information. Um, and we also, you know, love to, to talk to the public about these sites and, um, yep. you know, sometimes we can write articles or publications. So. Right. We've been speaking with Emily Jane Murray, archaeologist with the Florida Public Archaeology Network. Thanks, Emily Jane. Yeah, thanks. And Chuck Mead, maritime archaeologist and director of the Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program, research arm of the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Museum. Thanks as well, Chuck. Thank you so much for having us. Really fascinating to hear about their work. What cool jobs they have, Matthew. It's really neat <laughs> yeah, stuff. Almost as good as ours. <laughs> yeah. And thanks for listening, everybody. That's our show. The Florida Roundup is produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Bridget O'Brien produced today's program. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and our Technical Director is Peter Mance. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, Josh Torres, and Jackson Harp. Helen Acevedo answered your calls for us. Our theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Thanks for calling, tweeting, listening, and have a great weekend.